episode 88 of The Music Room. This episode is with Kimberly Hall and is all about teaching neurodivergent students in the music room. Before we listen to the interview with Kimberly, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her. Kimberly Hall is a K-9 music specialist with Edmonton Public Schools. Kimberly received her honors, bachelor's of arts and music, and a bachelor's of education from Lakehead University. Kimberly has been a music educator for over 30 years in many capacities as a private instructor, adjudicator, clinician, preschool music educator, band director, and has established and directed various local children's choirs. Kimberly is passionate about education and lives by the philosophy that all students are learners and all students can learn. She runs a highly inclusive program with a distinct focus on all students' unique needs and growth through the power of music. When she's not teaching, she enjoys spending time with her husband, two boys, and two fur babies. I hope you enjoy listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. Here's the show. All right, this episode is with Kimberly Hall, and it's all about teaching neurodivergent students in the music room. Kimberly, I'm so excited to have you on. So it's such an honor to be here and so excited as well. (laughs) All right. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your music educator journey and your current teaching situation? Absolutely. So I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, and I am currently teaching in a K-9 school. I am one of two music teachers, so I'm predominantly K-4, but have taught the whole gamut of K-9 previously. So Awesome. Um, and how long have you been teaching? Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm going into year 20 this year. Awesome. Great. Yeah. yeah. Year 20 with the same district, surprisingly. So Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm in year 24, but I've been in three different districts. So wow. <laughs> All right. So our listeners who are listening, they might, maybe they know what neurodivergent means. Maybe they don't. So how would you de- define neurodivergent? Absolutely. So neurodivergent is a, is a bit of a newer term that is taking the idea of neurodiversity is that it, none of our brains function the same way. We all have a unique brain and neurodiversity and considering ourselves a neurodivergent is what we used to consider special needs in a lot of cases, the invisible disabilities are all kind of clumped together in there. So you're looking autism, you're looking down syndrome, ADHD, OCD, anxiety, depression, OCD, Tourette's, a lot of those type of disabilities that are included in our classrooms. And a lot of times you don't physically see it. So the neurodivergent community is a brain that functions different. Yes. That's a, thank you for articulating that. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's a term that i probably haven't heard for very long, but I'm really excited to explore this with you. How did you become interested in how best to teach neurodivergent students? (laughs) Through life, I guess. Um, (laughs) For myself, actually, like many women out there, um, I was actually late diagnosed with ADHD. And my story kind of goes a little bit different in that in my high school years, I kind of hit a brick wall and I was diagnosed with dyslexia. And so I'd spent many years really focusing in on dyslexia. How do I learn with this? What does this mean in my brain? And really diving deep into that. Fast forward to me having children and hit really heavily with postpartum depression. And with that postpartum depression came a diagnosis of anxiety and general anxiety disorder and a realization that it had always been there as well. And just, I had never clued into it. I had never zoned into it. And then as my son got older, we always knew he was more. There was no other way to describe him. I think back even to my pregnancy, he was just always more. 
And so we really started to push and seek for diagnosis with him really early on, like around three or four years old. And in the process of diagnosing him, one of the thoughts that had come up was, is he gifted? And in giftedness, often the IQ is within five points of a parent or a sibling. So it kind of sparked me, hey, let me go back to my psychoeducational assessment that was done when I was 18 years old. And so I went back and I looked in it and wouldn't you know, lo and behold, very last line of my assessment says there's also a suspicion that Kim could have ADD and would benefit from further diagnosis and exploration. And I missed it. My family missed it. My doctor missed it because it was one sentence. And so it was like a huge light bulb of, well, wait a minute, always been there. I've always had this diagnosis. I just never realized it. So in learning more in terms of advocating for my son and seeing what I knew about myself and seeing my students in front of me and just seeing the increased need in my classroom, it just went deeper and deeper and deeper. And as many of us with ADHD, we tend to hyper-focus on certain things and it became a real deep dive and a passion for me. And when I started to learn more and more about how many women and girls are misdiagnosed or late diagnosed or even not diagnosed, I became even more passionate of how do I make sure that what I went through in putting the pieces together over a span of 30, 35 years does not happen to my students. And that was where I really kind of pushed forward and started heavily advocating for kids and understanding it more and bringing it to my colleagues and being in the music room. It is very, very different than being in a core classroom in terms of how can I support and accommodate these kids. And so just through trial and error and exploring and here brings me to where I am now. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story. I actually connected quite a bit of it because it wasn't until my youngest daughter, who's now 10, that she started, you know, getting on an IEP Uh and we noticed some things like sensory processing disorder and motor planning issues that, you know, they were, you know, the occupational therapist or teachers at school or whatever, and also speech delay. She was a late talker. So they started talking to me about what she was struggling with. And I was like, yeah, I didn't talk till I was five. Exactly. (laughs) Big deal. Oh yeah. Like I definitely have motor planning issues too. Like Mm -hmm. I really have to think about what physically, if it's some kind of physical task, how I do it. Like I really have to think through that. And uh, yeah, I have sensory issues too, but like, you know, I grew up in the was born in the late seventies or, you know, early growing up in the early eighties, we just didn't have a name for any of that. You know, it was just, that's the way you were. So I had some light bulb moments of, Oh, like I did well in school, but there are all these things that I had to do in order to cope and in order to kind of manage who I was as a person. And I probably kind of felt bad about that, but couldn't really articulate why I felt bad or I don't know. So yeah, I I definitely connect to a lot of what you're saying. And I grew up in a teacher household, you know, and I grew up with two parents who were special education teachers. And it was that same idea of, I had learned so many coping strategies and so many ways to just manage and get through and get by that even those who were closest to me and understood it all completely missed it. And I think the thing too, is that until probably the early 2000s, all diagnostic criteria was based on boys' behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a big revelation too, in that there are so many women that did slip through the cracks because traditionally, and I hate to use gender to specific ideas, but traditionally boys in with neurodiversity in younger ages show much more hyperactive, much more physical where women and girls tend to turn inward. Right. right? So we were very much seen 
just quiet or spacey or daydreamy when the reality is so many of us were actually struggling and trying to understand coping strategies. So that's something that I'm very attuned to, especially in my girls at school. Yeah. I, a couple of years ago, started hearing more about how like girls with autism present themselves in a much different way through, you know, suspecting that maybe my youngest daughter was autistic. So yeah, that's been really interesting to me to really think about those differences in how it doesn't always look a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. And definitely in, in a, you, you meet one person who's a neurodivergent and you meet one person with a neurodivergent, you know, like yes. mm-hmm. displaying in, a di- in the same way. And I think that's something in the neurotypical community that they really struggle to understand is you can't simply define it, label it, put a box on it and say, here's how I deal with it. And right. that's challenging for a lot of people. And especially for educators who, you know, you're thinking of so many other things on any given moment and any given day, it's now I'm, I'm, I'm challenged with this. And how do I meet this child's needs when from one day to the next, it's going to be different and it's going to display different. And so and I get it. I get it from all sides and I understand how it can fit in and where the children are struggling and where teachers are struggling and how we find that middle ground to get everybody through and feel successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So along those lines, we're talking about how yes when you meet one student who's neurodivergent you meet one student who's neurodivergent but that being said what are some things that we could consider when teaching students who are neurodivergent I think the biggest thing that everybody needs to shift their mindset is that behavior is communication always every single day every single time and when you're seeing a behavior whether it's a negative behavior, an unregulated behavior, whatever it is, there's always a why. And with our neurodivergent students, regardless of diagnosis, regardless of where they're at, nine times out of 10, it's because they're understimulated or overstimulated. And it's a matter of looking at where am I looking at? Like, what do they need from me right now? And in the nature of a music room, especially an elementary music room, we know how busy it is. We know how overwhelming it can be. So in that somewhat chaotic environment, how can you fit their needs and support their needs when they're feeling overstimulated or understimulated? And I think that's where a lot of music teachers need to kind of slow down and think through their brain, like think through their programming and think through what do I need to do for this child? And in some ways, kind of like rearranging your space, rearranging your programming, and more importantly, rearranging your expectations. That's a great tie into the next question. You're kind of, you started talking a little bit about strategies, but mm-hmm. what strategies, what are some strategies specific to the music room that you think work well for teaching students who are neurodivergent? I think the biggest thing is first of all, is looking at your mindset. What are my non-negotiables? right? What are, what do I absolutely need and expect from all my students? You know, for me, it's participation, it's kindness, it's, you know, being respectful of the space and each other and being considerate of everybody else, making choices that let everybody learn. I don't, like when I say participation, I don't mean you have to do it exactly the same way as others. For me, participation is just a matter of being willingly in the room some days. And that is fine, right? And so I think it's it's approaching what do I need? What is the outcome I'm looking at with this activity? And what do I need from that child to demonstrate it for me? And if they're able to demonstrate it for me in a different way or in a one-on-one setting or on a quiet day or on whatever it may be, allow that space and allow that space and time for a child to process it, to feel what they need to feel. And are they in the right space for it? If a child is overstimulated or understimulated, they're not going to get anything out of you, right? They're not going to hear it. They're not going to take it in. So I know for my room, I have 
a quiet space. I have a walking freedom space. I have lots of different sensory tools and chairs. I have fidgets available. I have stuffies and cuddle friends available. I have coloring sheets they can use. I have different activities. And all I ever expect is that you're in the room, you're being respectful, and you're trying your best. And if that is what participation looks like today, that's fine, right? And I think not expecting them, if we're doing a circle activity that is a high energy circle activity, when they're not there, that's fine, right? And the eye-opening one for me on that one actually goes back to a student I had probably about 15 years ago who was on the spectrum and was nonverbal and would often just sit in the back of my room, would not engage, wouldn't engage with her EA, wouldn't engage with me. And I truly thought, okay, she's just in my room. She's not gaining anything from it. And it wasn't until later in the year, mom sent me a video of every song we had learned and her completely playing them on piano by ear, singing them beautifully. And it just, it was a mind blowing moment for me that I went, she is learning Mm -hmm. on her face, in her time, in her way. And I need to just back up and give her the freedom to do that. Mm. And that was a huge moment where things shifted for me in that I just step back. I really do. You know, I know what I need you to know. I know what I'm showing you but you figure out how you're going to get there and what you need from me to be able to get there successfully on any given day. That's such a powerful story. Like when I first started teaching, you know, 24 years ago, in my mind, I felt like all students needed to be participating. I should see your mouth moving. I should see you sitting up. I should see you involved. You should be standing up. We should be, you know, all Mm -hmm. of that. And I have definitely loosened that the last several years because I can see that some students maybe aren't just not ready to sing yet. They're still absorbing. They're still listening. And then at some point they will. And maybe they don't, but then like you said, maybe they go home and they sing. So I, you know, try to encourage students Mm -hmm. to participate, but it's definitely kind of like a mindset shift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like when we talk about strategies for the music room is that they don't all have to be participating in the same way. And, And it's where is your comfort level as the teacher in terms of what are you comfortable letting go of so that they have the freedom to learn. And that's a big one, especially... I know early in our careers, and I'm guilty of it too, earlier in your career in a music room, when you're thrown in, you're thinking that feeling of they all have to be singing and they all have to be in the circle and they all need to be playing right now. And if they don't, I'm going to lose control, but you're not because you're going to lose control more so if you're pushing a child who's not ready to be there right. mm-hmm. into that position and into that place, you know? So I, I think when it comes down to it, it's, it's regulation. It's, it's where, where are you in a comfortable space for learning right now? What do you need in this space to stay in this space and just be and absorb and process in your own time and in your own space, in your own way? Yeah. I would love for you to dive a little bit more into, cause I've been experimenting and I don't know if I'm doing it in the best way. So I would love to love to hear how you set up like your stuffies and your sensory fidgets and all of that. How do you have that set up in your room? I think the main thing is, is I, they're available to everybody. So I actually spend pretty much most of September when we're all going through routines and expectations expectations and so on, teaching the kids what tools I have, what they benefit from each tool and letting all kids try it. So in the nature of my room, I have tried to keep everything against the walls. I have a very big open space. I don't use chairs. 
I don't use risers in my space. I just have a big wide open space. And then I have a quiet corner where I have floor cushions, floor pillows, some couches. I've been trying a tent, but it didn't quite work because (laughs) (laughs) it kind of floated around the room and I didn't want it. Uh Um, I just, it's a space where they can still see me but they know I'm not necessarily watching them. And then over in that space, I have just a treasure trunk filled with various stuffies. And I call them my cuddle friends and that they're for regulation. I have what I also call the rolling sensory station, which is just an Ikea rolling cart that has Mm -hmm. that they're all allowed to try and use. And the top is filled with fidgets galore. Everything you can think of in terms of a fidget. I have noise canceling headphones. Mm -hmm. Um, I have probably about eight or nine pairs that the kids can take. And I have a couple that I've actually taken the padding out. So it doesn't actually noise cancel, but for a lot of kids, it's that comfort of feeling Like I have a protection and that's been really a big one for a lot of kids. And then I have some weighted items on the bottom. So I have some weighted mats. Oh, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I've often found um, door stoppers. You can find door stoppers that are like stuffed up animals. So I've got like two owls. I have a wood log, just different things that I find. Yisk and different clothes, like stores, just random places. And I see it and I think, oh, that's great. So basically I have a lot of those types of things available for all kids. There's wiggle cushions, there's floor seat cushions, there's wobble stools, things like that. And the kids are allowed to help themselves to them. But they also know right from day one what it looks like to use it as a tool and what it looks like as a toy. And even my neurotypical children, sometimes they'll want a tool and I say, go for it. But the minute it becomes a distraction to someone else, a distraction to me, because they can throw my ADHD off the rails Mm -hmm. in a heartbeat Mm -hmm. or they're not focused. And I can see that they're not processing what I'm talking about or taking in what I'm talking about, then it's taken away. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that the idea of giving everybody the opportunity to use them and really explicitly taking the time and teaching, then I find that it doesn't become an issue. It's just kids come in, they think about where am I feeling today? What do I need? What do I want? And I don't ask for hands up. I don't ask for permission. It's go get what you need. But if you're not using it properly, then you're back to what we're working with and working on. You know, like everybody always thinks, oh, they need the fidgets and they need wiggle cushions and they need that. Yeah. And all those things are great. And I do agree, you know, get the fidgets, get different options, but it's also a process of learning how to use them. Just putting a fidget in a child's hand isn't always going to be the cure and not every fidget works with every kid. And not every fidget's going to work the same way for every kid. And so it's allowing that space and freedom also to try it and mm-hmm. to know that it might work today. It might not work tomorrow, but that's okay. I'm going to give you choices and options, you know? And if I find a kid is really off and really, you know, going off the rails and really dysregulated, I'll just pull them aside and I'll say, Hey, why don't you try this? Because, yeah. of, you know, and as music teachers, we're very lucky because we have our kids year after year after year that you can start to t- to read their tells, you know what I mean? And you can see, okay, I know this kiddo is going to have an off day today. And so before they can even get into it, it's, Hey, go try this today. Why don't you just take a break and be over here today and try coloring with a cuddle friend and just listening to me today and, and being able to read those tells, see those tells and offer them tools and options in a way that they don't feel like I'm being pointed out, but that it's just, it's a safe, different way to learn today. So when I like, yeah, the tools are all there and they're all great, but I really truly wholeheartedly believe it comes down to a mindset shift of what do you expect from your kids in your room? Yes. Thank you so much for all of that. Those are really great ideas. Which resources would you recommend for teaching neurodivergent students? Are there any, you know, books or online resources or or Facebook groups or anything like that that you would recommend? Absolutely. Your 
Number one resource when it comes to a kid's needs though is going to be mom and dad. Mom and dad are the ones that know that kid the best. I always say go to the parents first and go to any other neurodivergent first and just get some ideas and suggestions. And then from there, there's lots out there. Again, my focus is usually on ADHD. So there's Attitude Magazine is absolutely brilliant for lots of supports for teachers, for families, for everyone. Lives in the Balance with Dr. Ross Green. His stuff is absolutely fantastic. There's the, I know the Canadian routes, the Center for Advocacy for ADHD here in town. On YouTube, How to ADHD, she's absolutely. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, very, very great. And then in terms of actual music teachers that I also know are great advocates, Bryson at That Music Teacher. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of great resources. He actually has an inclusivity resource that really can walk you through step-by-step step of how to really make sure that you are including all kids with great ideas and simplicity ideas and simple ideas like that. So yeah, I can link to that in the show notes. I've actually had him on the podcast about, yeah. you know, differentiation and students with special needs. So yes. Yeah, no, he's great that way. But like I said, the first step is always go to mom and dad, go to those who know him them well. Like I know here in Canada, we don't have special aid coordinators per se, but I know in a lot of American schools, you'll have that special aid coordinator who's in charge of an IEP or their 504, I believe it's called Mm -hmm. down there. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, go to those people, go to those people that know their needs the most first and say, okay, what do you think they might need? And then kind of go from there and feel it out with the child. And a lot of times too, the child will be able to tell you it's too loud. It's too much. It's too busy, you know? So, and I think we often forget to actually talk to the child themselves in terms of what do you need? Because at the end of the day, what are we trying to do is teach that child how to advocate and regulate for themselves. Awesome suggestions. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think would be helpful? Yeah, I think the one thing that also sticks out is we are not neurotypical. So don't try to turn us into neurotypicals. And that's a big one is we are a lot of times compared to a neurotypical world, to a neurotypical child, to a neurotypical classroom. And we don't fit that mold. And trying to assimilate us into that mold is never going to work. We're going to be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated. It's just going to blow up. So I think that's the big thing is is respect who we are as a different brain, a diverse brain that's not going to function in this way and help us to suit that brain. So that that's, I think the biggest thing is, is we're not, don't try to bring us here. We're not over here. And especially don't try to cure us. We don't need to be cured. Yes. Have a different wiring and it can be a pretty fabulous thing that doesn't need to be cured. It doesn't need to be fixed. It just needs to be matched and accommodated and the world to recognize that we are not all the same. And then the last one, which gets my goat so, so bad is that don't superpower us. You know, often you'll hear ADHD is my superpower. OCD is my superpower. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's a different functioning brain, but it doesn't make me a superhero because I don't function the way you, I'm just different. My brain functions different and society needs to start to recognize a little more. So yes. Instead of just honoring those that are typical. Mm -hmm. Great thoughts. Where can we find you? Do you have like an Instagram account we could follow or. Okay. I am at uh, the, the underscore music underscore hall on both Instagram and TikTok when I remember to post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and I'm, 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 that's mostly where I'm usually available. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of the, your thoughts and resources. This was awesome. Yeah, would, you, awesome. would you like to talk about what we're consuming? Oh, I am, again, ADHD. 
I hyper focus in on things. My obsession right now is listening to Mr. Redder on YouTube, who just reads Reddit posts out loud on YouTube. <laughs> I've not heard of this. Oh, it's great. It's like usually entitled parrots posts and it's different subreddits and he just reads them for me. So they're great nighttime listening and I just oh. and just listen to it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I wonder if he's on TikTok. That sounds like it would be a good TikTok yeah content too okay I will link that that sounds fun I have you seen the movie everything everywhere all at once not yet it's on my to-do list over the holidays yeah my um I have an 18 year old who is a college freshman and Mm -hmm. she saw it with her friends and she was like mom you have to see this with me so we finally watched it and I won't give too much away Mm -hmm. but I will say it's a little bit it's very different it's almost like a kung fu movie but it has like this whole like really deep meaning to it and some of it's a little bit trippy but like really 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 good Mm. so it'll make you think for sure Mm. like about the meaning of life I guess but really really well done so like I said that one's on my wish list for the holidays (laughs) yes yeah all right well Kimberly thank you so much for coming on the show like I said so many great ideas and I hope it gets music teachers they have their, their wheels turning about how best to address the needs of neurodivergent students in the music room thank you thank you for having me all right have a good one